Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neuroscientist shares her research into schizophrenia. One thing that we know for sure, there's not one cause of schizophrenia, there's multiple causes. And in different individuals, there can be different root causes. And an endocrinologist provides an overview of osteoporosis, focusing on the best treatments and how to pick what's right for you. Bones become weaker and brittle due to bone loss. This increases the risk for fractures, Fracture is a serious complication of osteoporosis, especially in older patients. And it is also more so important because uh, sometimes fracture is the only indication for sign of osteoporosis. All that, plus how to differentiate forgetfulness from the early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, followed by a visit from the Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll examine the variety of treatments for osteoporosis with an endocrinologist who directs Upstate's Metabolic Bone Disease Center. But first, a neuroscientist tells about the severe chronic brain disorder known as schizophrenia and some recent breakthroughs in her research. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The severe chronic brain disorder known as schizophrenia is one of the most disabling diseases affecting mankind. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Cindy Weikert. She's a professor of neuroscience and physiology at Upstate who has dedicated her career to better understanding the biology of schizophrenia. And today, she's speaking to me from Sydney, Australia. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Weikert. Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I understand that you're a twin and your interest in studying schizophrenia was sparked by your brother. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, my twin brother, um, he actually liked to remind me that he was my older brother by three minutes. Um, we were quite close growing up, um, always looking out for each other, holding hands our first day of kindergarten. And, um, you know, during the school years, we did typical things, swimming in lakes, um, sledding down snow-covered hills. And then in adolescence, things changed. We got a little bit more competitive. We were more rivals, but nothing prepared me for when he started saying that I was the daughter of the devil and threatening my mom and playing Beatles records backwards. And I guess we thought he'd snap out of it, but things got worse. And instead of snapping out of it, he got diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I thought, well, they'll just, you know, give him a treatment and he'll get better. But then I realized the treatments that he was getting weren't helping him to get better. So I decided I'd try to figure out what was wrong with his brain so I could help him. So what age was that, that these changes started taking place? Um, around 17 years of age. How did he get diagnosed? And how, in general, does a person go about getting the schizophrenia diagnosis? How do, what's the disease defined as? As far as I know, the only way to get a diagnosis is by a trained clinician, um, typically a psychiatrist, and they do a structured interview. They have to um, ask a number of questions and see persistent bizarre, bizarre behavior. So it will be uh, anything from disorganized speech to having delusions. Um, so you actually will see things that aren't there, hear things that aren't there. Oftentimes they get this sensation that there's um, things being implanted into their brain or they're being sent special messages. In the case of my brother, he had all kinds of wires hooked up in his room, with these geometric shapes on the wall, and he would play Beatles records backwards. And he felt that there were special messages being encoded in there for him. Um, so that's not uncommon, this thought insertion, it's called. Um, but it can be um, delusions of almost religious persecution or um, delusions of grandeur or um, any variety of things that are separating reality from the perception. And that's really what schizophrenia means, a splitting of the mind from reality. 
Why does it appear so often in late adolescence or early adulthood? That's a really good question. We're not entirely sure. I have a working hypothesis that um, there's normal maturational processes that happen, and we know about these in the body, they're obvious, but in the brain, there's also maturational events, particularly um, surrounding the dopaminergic neurons. And so they make a transition from a juvenile state to an adult state. And um, my theory is that individuals with schizophrenia fail to make that transition appropriately. So it's a time of vulnerability. It's a time of change. And, you know, um, sex hormones can drive that. Um, if there's psychosocial stress, that could derail the development. If there's exposure to drugs of abuse, that could derail the development. So there's one thing that we know for sure, there's not one cause of schizophrenia, there's multiple causes. And in different individuals, there can be different root causes. And um, so I think adolescence is just a vulnerability period and it kind of can unmask a prior vulnerability or it can be when you're exposed to novel environmental things that actually can damage the brain. Does someone who has schizophrenia have the ability to understand what's wrong with them? That's a good question. So oftentimes early on in the disease, they don't have the ability to know what's wrong with them. We call that insight. So they lack insight into the disease. So if you can imagine growing up with a brain that you've known and trust to give you real information about the world, how do you then distinguish that the brain is giving you false information? You have to sort of learn that, okay, what you're hearing in this context or experiencing is not grounded in reality. I don't know if you saw the movie, A Beautiful Mind, and in the beginning, you really believe that he had those roommates. And then all of a sudden, there's this break where he's realizing they're not really there. I think he's in the uh, psychiatrist's office. And, you know, but then towards the end of the movie, he's not really quite sure if they're there or not there. So they can kind of go in and out of believing and not believing. But it was that moment when he thought, well, maybe these are just my imagination, that was when he developed insight into those hallucinations. Now, in that movie, those were visual hallucinations, which are less common than the auditory hallucinations. But I would say, no, they don't always have insight in the beginning. Some never develop insight. Are they able to care for themselves, even if they don't understand, you know, what is happening to them? Can they take medication on their own? Can they, can they take care of themselves? I would say... Yes, they can take care of themselves in most cases. I mean, with the advent of neuroleptics in the 1950s, they didn't really need to hospitalize people in institutions anymore. They could be cared for at home. They can sometimes live on their own. One thing, they're not always that consistent with their medication, or they may start feeling that they don't need the medication and stop taking it, which is um, quite a problem because then they're more likely to relapse. And we know that the psychotic events themselves can be damaging to the brain. And the more relapse that they have, the harder it is for them to then get stabilized on good treatment. Um, so you wanna avoid that. We think that there might be some um, toxicity that's involved when they are in a um, very florid psychotic state. Now, did you say that uh, the treatment did not work for your brother? Well, you know, uh, the treatment doesn't really work for anybody uh, very well. I mean, 80% of the people with schizophrenia can't hold down jobs. You know, 30% are treatment unresponsive. The ones that do respond to the treatment often have other complications like metabolic syndrome, diabetes, weight gain. I mean, there's a blunting of the um, personality with these drugs. These drugs are not really getting at the root of the problem. Um, so while their um, positive symptoms might be dampened, they don't restore them to their former level of um, ability or achievement. And most of them don't have what we would call a normal life. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with schizophrenia researcher, Dr. Cynthia Weikert. She recently won the 2021 Outstanding Translational Research Award from the Schizophrenia International Research Society. And now we're going to talk about her work. What have you learned about the brains of people with schizophrenia? Well, recently I've made a breakthrough, and that is that the brains of people with schizophrenia are inflamed. 
Um, that means that molecules that the immune system used to signal danger and damage and um, pathogens are actually activated within the brains of people with schizophrenia. And what I find actually is an increase in macrophages. So those are immune cells that can be positioned in the brain near the blood-brain barrier, and they can actually um, stimulate cytokines and complement that can cause tissue damage. We certainly know that invasion of macrophages into other tissues um, can um, interfere with their function. And we think that this is happening in the brains of people with schizophrenia. It's never been shown before. We're one of the first labs to find it. That sounds like you're describing an autoimmune disease. Well, um, autoimmune would be more with the B cell, so that would be adaptive immunity, but there are forms of schizophrenia that um, have been identified as autoimmune encephalitis um, that make antibodies to the NMDA receptor, which is in the brain. Now, the neurologists want to separate that form of schizophrenia, which is estimated to be about 5%, and say, well, that's a neurological disease, not a psychiatric disease. And one of the things with schizophrenia is once we identify the biological cause, then it's kind of underlying root cause, so it's no longer schizophrenia. But for the, you know, until 2006, it would have been classified as, as schizophrenia. And so, you know, there are severe forms of this NMDA receptor encephalitis that would lead to epilepsy and death, but there's more mild forms that are thought to have gone unrecognized in the psychiatric, you know, um, services. So I think this is the tip of the iceberg, yes, that there is a whole variety of immunological core reasons for schizophrenia, be it the antibody, autoantibodies, or be it macrophage invasion, some kind of um, inflammation. And yes, we're wondering what's causing the inflammation in the first place. Well, that was going to be my next question. What, what are your theories about where this inflammation is coming from? I think we're on the forefront of another breakthrough. Um, have two talented students at Upstate Graduate Students, and I'm working with the genius Frank Middleton. And we're actually interested in the microbiome in the brain. And we're, we're um, hot on the trail of figuring out if maybe a microbe is... Um, uh, disproportionately um, exists in the brains of people with schizophrenia, but very early days in this research, but that's one of the angles we're pursuing here at Upstate. So it seems like there's a lot of research being done to find out the cause of schizophrenia. Is there a thought that there's some genetic component? Well, there's a definitely genetic predisposition. So, um, you know, it's thought to be that uh, identical twins, we talk about we started talking about twins, we'll finish talking about twins. If uh, I had an identical twin, there would be a 50% chance that she would have schizophrenia as well if I did. Um, so is that genetic or not? It's like flipping a coin. Certainly we know schizophrenia can run in, in families, but we know there is also sporadic appearance. So schizophrenia, just by rule of thumb, is about 1%. If you have a relative, close relative, it might be up to 10%, but that means 90% chance you're not going to have it. So it's the genes and the environment coming together that causes schizophrenia. Now, what sort of treatment would you like to be able to develop? Well, what we're trying now is anti-inflammatory treatments. So the idea is no matter what the cause of the inflammation is, if it's making a bad situation worse, if we can dampen down the inflammation, can we give the brain a chance to heal and get better? So those are adjunctive. But down the track, if we actually identify a microbe, you could imagine we could use an antibiotic or an antiviral if we knew which one and which particular person. But in order to, to match you know, that treatment with the individual and their underlying cause, it's variable, then we need biomarkers. So we're also investing in trying to find easily accessible blood biomarkers to define those that are inflamed and what type of uh, inflammation or immunological problem they have so we get the right treatment for the right person. You're originally from the Finger Lakes and you're a graduate of Cuca College. How did you get involved in Neuroscience Research Australia and how do you divide your time between Syracuse and Sydney? So I went to New York City and Mount Sinai, graduated with a PhD, where I became a molecular biologist studying the development of dopaminergic neurons. Then I took those skills to the NIH to start applying it to the disease of my passion, schizophrenia. 
from there, I rose to the level of unit chief, and I was one of the few scientists doing developmental neurobiology of schizophrenia. And that's exactly what they were looking for in Australia, someone to chair a research program. Um, that was in 2006. And there was about 80 scientists here in the state that needed leadership. And a headhunter found me, and I was chosen for the position, and they made me an offer I couldn't refuse, thinking I would be there for five years with an $8 million package. And five years has now turned into 15 or closer to 15. Um, but, you know, there is uh, also an interest coming home. My mom, I wanted to be with her. Um, and uh, Upstate had invested in uh, neuroscience research. I was actually... Um, interviewing for a job here. I had colleagues with, um, you know, in the field of psychiatry, like Steve Glatt that I was working with. Um, and I visited and I kind of, you know, uh, just fell back in love with the Finger Lakes. And I thought, well, maybe, a, you know, there's globalization of research. Maybe it would be good to have a presence in upstate and in Syracuse. And I've done cross-fertilization of students across the two countries. And, you know, some things I can do at Upstate that I can't do in Australia. Some things I can't do at Upstate that I can do in Australia. So I try to, you know, leverage both. And in terms of splitting my time, I would have never imagined that you could be at two places at the same time. But with the global pandemic, it's taught us that we can. And basically, I work 120% at both places, which really amounts to about 70 hours worth of work. I'm a bit of a workaholic, but, uh, you know, I do it. Well, as a scientist who has personal experience with the disease, what do people what do people need to know if they have a loved one with schizophrenia? Um, I guess one of the things to keep in mind is that there is a biological disease process uh, going on in, in in their brain, and there's nobody to blame. You know, they shouldn't blame themselves. They shouldn't blame certainly their family, um, I think to be patient, I think to provide a loving environment and to try to buffer any kind of stress because we know that that can trigger um, psychosis, um, good diet, good exercise, the things that are anti-inflammatory um, would be helpful. Um, nutritional assessment, of course, but for right now, I think in terms of better treatment, stay tuned, don't lose hope. I think we're really, um, on the threshold of, of very exciting times in the field and ones that we're not just going to base our treatments on chance discoveries from the 1950s. We're going to do something altogether different, all different therapies beyond D2 receptor blockers that the antipsychotics are all modeled after. Thank you to Dr. Cindy Weikert, a professor of neuroscience and physiology at Upstate who studies schizophrenia. I'm Amber Smith from Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how to select the best osteoporosis treatment for you. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Osteoporosis is a disease in which decreased bone strength and bone mass significantly increase your risk of fractures. Today, we're exploring how to treat this condition with Dr. Ruben Dollywall. She's the director of the Metabolic Bone Disease Center, an associate professor of medicine, and an endocrinologist who researches metabolic bone diseases, including osteoporosis. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Dollywall. Thank you for having me on, Amber. If I understand correctly, both men and women can develop osteoporosis, but older postmenopausal women are at greatest risk. Why is that? So osteoporosis is a disorder of the bone. And as you mentioned, bones become weaker and brittle due to bone loss. This increases the risk for fractures. Fracture is a serious complication of osteoporosis, especially in older patients. And it is also more so important because uh, sometimes fracture is the only indication for sign of osteoporosis. Uh, both men and women can develop osteoporosis. Osteoporosis affects more women than men, primarily because women have uh, usually smaller, thinner, and less dense bones than men. 
women also live longer than men. Bone loss occurs naturally with aging. So that's another reason. Also, women lose more bone mass after menopause. Um, estrogen is a hormone that protects bones and uh, women reach menopause and estrogen levels decline. And that's when the risk of osteoporosis increases in women with menopause. Is the disease different in women than in men, or do you have different treatments for women versus men? So the current treatment uh, indications, uh, there are two groups of medications and both groups of medications are recommended for use in men and women. But the common osteoporosis, commonly which we refer to osteoporosis is postmenopausal osteoporosis. And that's the osteoporosis which occurs after menopause due to estrogen loss. I see. Now, I know a variety of medications may be prescribed, and I'd like to ask you about each of them. So let's begin with hormone therapy. Is that something that's used for women and men? So hormones are important uh, for our body functions. Um, estrogen is a sex hormone that is essential to female health and particularly female bone health. Estrogen um, acts in many different ways, but the main mechanism through which it affects bones is it li limits bone loss. It helps maintain bone density and bone mass. Um, so in women, when they go through menopause, um, menopausal hormone therapy is often recommended to treat menopausal symptoms. Um, and uh, menopausal hormone therapy is also uh, indicated for prevention of bone loss. So the only FDA indication for estrogen use in postmenopausal women is prevention of postmenopausal osteoporosis. Similar to estrogen in women, uh, testosterone is a sex hormone that is essential for uh, male uh, health and for uh, male bone health. So if uh, testosterone levels decline in men, they can also develop osteoporosis. And in that case, um, uh, testosterone use is recommended for uh, treatment of osteoporosis and prevention of bone loss. Are there side effects to be aware of for um, men or women who, uh, you know, use hormone therapy for this? So estrogen replacement therapy is um, appropriate for postmenopausal women, but it should not be used if uh, women have history of um, breast or uterine cancer, high risk for breast or uterine cancer, and there's a conversation, a dialogue to be had uh, with their physicians. Um, if there is poor liver or uh, function or liver disease. Um, that's a contraindication for estrogen replacement therapy. If patients have recent history of blood clots, both estrogen and testosterone uh, should not be used. Um, there has been uh, really a concern about increased um, cardiovascular uh, side effects and uh, breast cancer, particularly when we talk about hormone replacement therapy. So current recommendation for use of um, say menopausal hormone therapy is for the relief of menopausal symptoms and in the lowest dose necessary and for the shortest time possible for exactly those reasons. How do the bisphosphonates work? Those would be like Boniva, Fosamax, and there's a bunch of others, right? Correct. So bisphosphonates uh, belong to a class of medications called anti-resorptives. What that word uh, translates into basically preventing bone loss or slowing the rate of bone loss. And there are a number of medications under that group. Uh, bisphosphonates being the primary um, uh, group of medications under that category. Bisphosphonates exactly work by slowing down the rate of bone loss. They may also help increase bone mineral density by slowing the bone, uh, the rate of bone loss. Uh, bisphosphonates uh, come in oral formulation as well as injectable formulations. Uh, bisphosphonates um, are the oldest drug that has been available for treatment of osteoporosis, and they lead to about uh, approximately 50% to 70% reduction in spine fractures um, and nearly 50% reduction in hip fractures. So they're considered pretty effective, it sounds like. 
they are very effective in treatment of uh, osteoporosis and prevention of fractures. Uh, are there side effects to be aware of? Yes, so uh, with oral medications, uh, with oral bisphosphonates, patients can get um, irritation of uh, stomach lining and um, esophagus lining, and there may be difficulties absorbing the medication, um, dyspepsia-like symptoms, uh, heartburn. Um, those are more common seen by oral, uh, when patients are taking oral medications. With injectable bisphosphonates, patients can get mild flu-like symptoms. These are more common, but these, as I mentioned, these are mild, happening within the first 24 hours, 48 hours after the injection. And uh, subsequently, uh, we worry about some of the rare side effects, but these are rare side effects. Uh, I bring this up as a very important point because uh, patients often um, refrain from considering treatment of osteoporosis due to concerns of these serious adverse effects, side effects of these medications. But I want to emphasize that these side effects such as osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical femur fractures, these are extremely rare side effects of these medications and are primarily related to um, a dose, a high dose use of these medications, uh, which we do in some cases and um, also related to the longer duration of medication use. You're learning about osteoporosis treatment on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, here with Dr. Ruben Dhaliwal. She's an endocrinologist who's the director of the Metabolic Bone Disease Center at Upstate. We've talked about hormone therapy and bisphosphonates, and now I'd like to ask you about monoclonal antibody medications. How do these work? Yes, so uh, denosumab was a monoclonal antibody, uh, which was approved by the FDA in 2010 for treatment of osteoporosis in postmenopausal women who are at high risk for fractures. Um, it is a biologic, a monoclonal antibody. It works by blocking a certain protein in your body. So by blocking that protein, the bones don't break down as quickly and easily. And this is another medication which falls under the category of uh, anti-resorptives. So we talked about bisphosphonates as the first medication and denosumab also falls under that category of anti-resorptives. It is another injectable medication which can help reduce bone loss and improve bone strength. Now, what about bone building medications? When are those recommended? Uh, bone building medications is now the second category of medications to treat um, postmenopausal osteoporosis. Uh, these medications are recommended for uh, treatment of postmenopausal osteoporosis in women who are at high risk for fracture, have failed other therapies, or have not tolerated previous osteoporosis therapies. Um, Bone-building medications are also approved for treatment of glucocorticoid-induced uh, osteoporosis and treatment of osteoporosis in men. Are there concerns about side effects for bone-building? Uh, bone-building medications can um, initially uh, give slightly high blood calcium levels, and those are usually transient. Um, and requires uh, blood calcium monitoring, especially in the first few weeks of starting the medication. So that's the more common uh, side effect, and it is transient. Um, other side effects um, basically are, uh, there's a rare bone cancer uh, related to the use of the medication, but uh, this has not been uh, noted in humans thus far, but it has been seen in um, uh, rodents when these medications were being developed. And because it is a rare bone cancer, that uh, side effect of bone cancer is listed on the medication. I see. Now, do you have patients who are taking more than one of these types of medications at the same time? I do not have patients who are taking more than one of these medications at once. and. Uh, the primary reason behind that is there is no FDA-approved indication for combination treatment of osteoporosis at this point. Um, and that is such because there are no research studies showing that combination treatment with two or more osteoporosis medications has a greater 
effect on fracture reduction than treatment with a single uh, medication. So until uh, we have more information on the effect of combination therapy on fracture risk, um, there is no recommendation of concomitant use of these agents for prevention or for treatment of osteoporosis. So how do you as the physician help the patient determine which medicine is going to be the best one for them? I think this is a, an excellent point and that I, um, you know, keep reminding myself over and over again that patient dialogue is key, um, particularly when it comes to risk communication. Uh, it is very important to inform the patients about potential risks and benefits of treating osteoporosis and not treating osteoporosis. So before even I get into discussion with uh, the patients about uh, potential benefits and risk of individual medications, I want my patients to fully appreciate the risk of fractures and their consequences uh, if no treatment is given for osteoporosis. So it is really incumbent on me as their physician to provide this information to each patient. And then I move on to discussing the uh, individual medications by informing them um, on the potential risks and benefits. Uh, basically, goal is here to educate the patient so that they are involved in the shared decision-making process all along. And if, if, they, if you try one of the types of medicines and it's not helping or the side effects are bad, can, are you able to switch to another type? Absolutely. So if there are no contraindications, patients should be able to switch to other treatment options. And um, that's a place where we should be very vigilant about, especially if a medication is new to the patient. Well, I'm curious, what are fractures like for someone who has osteoporosis? So a fracture is, um, as I mentioned earlier, fracture is sometimes the first indication that the patient has osteoporosis. And fractures are a serious complication, especially when it comes to older patients. Fractures can be very debilitating. Fractures can lead to pain, uh, disability, and deformity. They can substantially reduce the quality of life. Uh, more than 50% uh, of uh, survivors of hip fractures are unable to return to independent living. Uh, many also require nursing home care. So it is really crucial to avoid a uh, fracture from an individual patient's health perspective, but also as a major public health concern. Is the healing time longer if someone has osteoporosis and they break ribs or hips or arms? Yes, so if a patient has osteoporosis, there can be complications with, uh, you know, repair of these fractures. Healing can be poor, it can be delayed. And uh, those are the things which we are proactively trying to avoid by screening patients uh, for osteoporosis and treating them early on. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more about the treatment of osteoporosis after this short break. listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Ruben Dhaliwal, who directs the Metabolic Bone Disease Center at Upstate. We've talked about a variety of medications. What are the roles of calcium and vitamin D in treating osteoporosis? Calcium is found in our bones and teeth. Um, it uh, is a nutrient that is essential in building a block of bone and helps maintain bone strength and bone mass, maintain bone mass throughout our lifetime. Um, calcium and vitamin D both work together to protect our bones. Calcium helps build and maintain bones and vitamin D is uh, essential in our body to effectively absorb calcium. Um, if we don't get enough calcium uh, from uh, food, um, it can make our bones weaker over time and can lead to osteoporosis. So are calcium and vitamin D useful for preventing osteoporosis in the first place? Yes. Uh, so calcium and vitamin D can help uh, 
protect and maintain bones. Uh, these are simple ways of protecting and promoting bone health, adequate intake of calcium and vitamin D throughout our lifetime. In terms of, you mentioned, you know, calcium is in, in the diet, vitamin D is in the diet, certain foods. Is it better to eat those in, in foods or can we get the nutrients through um, supplements and vitamins? I do encourage my patients that whenever possible uh, that they get calcium from food. But if a patient has inadequate uh, calcium intake uh, from food, they can certainly consider uh, and discuss calcium supplements with their physicians. Um, it's healthy nutrition in general throughout childhood and throughout life is important in terms of building bones and maintaining bone health. Um, so this bone healthy diet is a diet basically that is rich in calcium and vitamin D. So uh, we talk about often with patients foods rich in calcium. These include uh, dairy products, so milk, yogurt, cheese. Uh, we also talk about dark and leafy uh, green, uh, green vegetables. These are broccoli, kale, collard greens. Um, canned fish, uh, sardines, almonds, these are all good um, uh, calcium-rich foods for uh, good for bone health. Um, good sources of vitamin D include fatty fish, uh, such as salmon, sardines, and tuna. Uh, eggs and uh, fortified foods, such as milk and cereals, also contain some amount of vitamin D. And again, if a patient is not getting enough calcium or vitamin D from food, then definitely there is a place uh, to discuss uh, use of supplements. Now, how do you feel about soy? So soy are, have a, a chemical called isoflavone, and these are estrogen-like chemicals. Uh, so these are equivalent to human estrogen, this is a plant estrogen when we talk about soy. It's found in soy foods, um, which are lentils, kidney beans, uh, lima beans, fava beans, chickpeas. While this chemical itself is similar in structure to estrogen, uh, studies have not found consistent results in terms of its effect on um, the bone health. So there is no evidence at this point that the soy isoflavones decrease the risk of osteoporosis-related fractures. Is it safe to drink alcohol if you have osteoporosis? Excessive alcohol intake has a negative effect on health in general. It also has a negative effect on bone formation. Um, but there are other reasons also why excessive intake of alcohol can increase the fracture risk because it can increase uh, the risk of falls. It can also lead to calcium deficiency and chronic liver disease. Uh, chronic liver disease in turn can lead to also vitamin D deficiency. I've heard that weight bearing exercise is recommended to keep your bones healthy. Um, can you describe what that is and, and how it works? So regular physical activity is key to bone health uh, during childhood and throughout adult life. I remind patients that when I'm prescribing them medications, these medications are going to work through uh, to their full potential um, only when we do these other um, measures to prevent and promote bone health all along. And we talked about calcium and vitamin D. And regular physical activity is another such uh, measure to uh, bone health. So weight-bearing exercises such as walking, jogging, dancing, aerobics, they can help build bones and slow bone loss. Um, I also want to make an important point. This does not necessarily mean going to the gym or lifting heavy weights. And I bring this up especially for older women uh, where we uh, talk about primarily postmenopausal osteoporosis. Weight-bearing could mean simply as lifting light weights few times a week. Um, so clearly, regular physical activity and weight-bearing exercises do help slow bone loss. Um, and they also improve balance and also help reduce the risk of falls. So you don't need to go to the gym or become a weightlifter. Are the, what, what do you reckon, are, like uh, push-ups, are those, are those good for like weight-bearing if you just want to 
do some things around the house? So just light weights can be a few times a week, few, uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes, few times a week, just having light weight uh, bearing exercises, dumbbells could help um, reduce bone loss. Walking has impact. These are impact. Uh, these are weight bearing uh, exercises that will cause an impact and walking about 30 to 40 minutes per session um, for a few minutes uh, back and posture exercises three to four times a week. These are all exercises that can help prevent bone loss. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Ruben Dollywall, the director of the Metabolic Bone Disease Center at Upstate. What tips do you have for keeping your bones healthy to, to prevent osteoporosis? And I guess I'm talking about children or teenagers because um, it starts then, right? When your body's building the bone, what do people, what would ideally they do to set themselves up for a, you know, a healthy life, healthy bones. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, healthy nutrition is very important, uh, during childhood and throughout adult life, um, to build bones as well as maintaining bone health, especially for children, as they are accruing bone mass, it is very important that they have calcium and vitamin D rich diet. Um, and in general, um, stay very active. Um, this is key. Uh, by the time we reach age 20, we have accrued 90% of bone mass. So we really want to take advantage of that childhood years to build a good bone mass, a higher, we call it peak bone mass, uh, so that we could start out our adult years as with a good bone mass and then work on to maintaining that bone mass through healthy diet, uh, through regular physical activity and weight-bearing exercise, uh, limiting alcohol intake, avoiding smoking, uh, avoiding falls. These are all universal measures that can be applied uh, throughout life stages. Now, when I was little, we had milk served to us for every meal. We had milk with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And if we didn't have milk, it was water. It, the kids today um, have other beverages, but they have so many different milk options, quote unquote milk options. We were drinking cow's milk, but today there's almond milk. There's, there's all kinds of varieties. Um, when you talk about dairy, is it cow's milk that you're looking for high calcium, vitamin D fortified? Is that just in the cow's milk? So uh, I'm not necessarily saying that the cow, the milk has to be fortified. You know, the cow's milk has is naturally high in calcium content. So any of those uh, options that you just listed are perfectly fine. I have to uh, differ it to the patients because they may have certain preference. Uh, patients also have um, lactose intolerance. So that becomes an important component. Uh, not all my patients are going to tolerate dairy intake and my recommendations have to be tailored to each and every patient. Now, even if someone does all of this, uh, all controls everything they can about what they eat and, and you know, eats healthy and has calcium and vitamin D throughout their life, is there a genetic component to this where we don't have control over everything and some of us may be more prone to osteoporosis? Yes. So for postmenopausal osteoporosis, your risk uh, is increased for uh, to developing osteoporosis primarily because uh, if you have family history of osteoporosis, if you have a, parental, a parent with a history of hip fracture, um, so those uh, are all risk factors that come with genetic predisposition to developing osteoporosis. Well, let's talk about um, advice that you have about preventing fractures or falls, because even in your patients who are, you know, taking medications and they're, they're working well for them, I'm guessing it's still important to prevent a fall to begin with. So as we get older, um, what are some things we might not think about that, that we can do to prevent stumbles. Yes. So in addition to these, you know, healthy nutrition, regular physical activity, good and good lifestyle habits of uh, not smoking and avoiding excessive intake of alcohol, 
all of this we talked about, but I often tell my patients, bones good or bad, it's the fall that does it. And I bring that up because that is oftentimes the case. Um, while patients may not have a high severity of osteoporosis, a greater degree of osteoporosis, but when they fall, that even um, that that fall can lead to a fracture. So it is very important, especially in older patients. As we get older, our balance uh, may not be the same and may decline with aging. And for those reasons, it is very important uh, to maintain good balance uh, to avoid falls. Uh, there are other measures, um, you know, household adaptations that we can uh, look into avoiding uh, to avoid falls. Uh, it uh, includes anchoring rugs, uh, minimizing uh, clutter around the house, uh, removing any loose wires, using uh, non-skid mats, uh, installing handrails in bathrooms and long uh, stairways making sure that the hallways or the entrances and the stairwells are well lit. Uh, patients should wear uh, sturdy shoes. Um, and another way to avoid falls is also keep up with the balance, as I mentioned, and physical activity itself helps with that also. Thank you to Dr. Ruben Dhaliwal, the director of the Metabolic Bone Disease Center. This has really been a helpful overview of treatments for osteoporosis. I'm your host, Amber Smith, for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now for some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Dr. Sharon Brangman is the Chief of Geriatrics. How does a person in their 60s determine whether forgetfulness is part of normal aging or a symptom of Alzheimer's? That's one of the most frequent questions I get asked and people say I'm having senior moments and they're terrified that they have Alzheimer's disease. And I think it's something that if you're concerned about, you should definitely pursue it, go to your healthcare provider and get an evaluation. But I can tell you that most people are on overload. They're multitasking. They have a lot of information to process and they're trying to do too many things at once. However, if your memory problem starts to interfere with your ability to get through the day, then I would be concerned. If your memory problem makes you start to have problems at work. So maybe you're late for meetings or you're not prepared or you forgot to make important calls, then I would be concerned. If your behaviors change from what you used to do on a day-to-day -day basis, if maybe you're more withdrawn and you don't wanna participate in conversations with other people, or maybe you start to say things that come to your mind without filtering them and being appropriate, then I would be concerned. If it starts to impact some of the day-to-day -day things that you do, like driving, if you start to have problems figuring out how to get to a place that is normally familiar, then I would be concerned. So what we're looking for is a memory problem that also impacts your day-to-day -day functioning. And that's how we start to tell the difference between a memory problem that might just be due to being overloaded, overtired, multitasking, versus one that might be more serious and needs further evaluation. However, what I want people to understand is that memory loss is not a normal part of aging. So there's always that thought that, oh, old people always get forgetful. We may have changes in the way we process new information as we get older, but memory loss is not normal. So if you have a memory problem, you should go and get it evaluated. Thank you, Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's the Chief of Geriatrics at Upstate. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Marilyn McVickers has published several books of poetry and nonfiction. The poem she sent us deftly separates good doctors from poor doctors. She reminds patients to speak up and not settle for less than a caring professional. Here is Doctors. 
I breathe, review my notes, while the clock ticks the minutes, weeks, years of illness, decanted into a 20-minute appointment. I have driven so many miles. Will she listen? Will she walk in with a smile? I have had so many doctors wear their impertinence like stethoscopes. Well, you certainly don't look sick. Your diagnosis is too complicated. There's nothing I can do to help you. This poem is not for all those smirking, frenzied physicians who push judgment and peddle fear. This poem is for the doctor who pulled up a chair, made eye contact, listened. This poem is for the doctor who ventured from behind the computer, listened, asked intelligent questions. This poem is for the doctor who did not reflexively grab the prescription pad, realized I needed medical care, admitted he couldn't help, found someone who could. This poem is for the doctor who worked to find the right diagnosis, taught me to give my own injections, started home infusions, called each week to check in. This poem is for the doctor who understood his partnership was more important than healing that would never come. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an episode focused on cancer. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.